Jimmy Boyle was the victim of a miscarriage of justice in Scotland, and at the time the allegations were made, he was a well-respected teacher. The allegations dated back to the 1970s. At Jimmy's trial, his defence was really clear. The complainers were lying. However, when his defence counsel addressed the jury, in his closing speech, he said this, I do not suggest, never really did suggest, you may think, except perhaps occasionally in trying to test evidence, that what they were doing was telling lies, deliberate lies. Now, the problem with this is really clear. What he had effectively done is invited the jury to find that the witnesses to fact were not liars, were honest, and had persuaded themselves of the truth of their false allegations, i.e. they were suffering from false memory syndrome. Now, the problem with this is there was absolutely no evidence to support this, Jimmy, unsurprisingly, was convicted at trial and he was sentenced to over 10 years imprisonment. And what happened was, after serving a number of years in prison, the appeal court considered his case and they said what in effect was being said to the jury was that the position taken by the appellant in evidence was unsupportable. In this situation, we are driven to conclude that the taking of that course represented a material departure from the appellant's instructions as to the basic nature of his defence. They made it very clear that his fundamental right to a fair trial was lost and they found there had been a miscarriage of justice. And of course the convictions were quashed. Jimmy had to face a retrial and was acquitted of all the charges. However, his battle to return to the life he had before was just beginning. This is Jimmy's story. Jimmy, I wondered if you could just introduce yourselves to the listeners. Hello, my name is Jimmy Boyle. Uh, I was a school teacher uh, who, uh, in early 2003, uh, was threatened that my career in teaching was to be destroyed. Well, Jimmy, I wonder if we could, first of all, if you could just tell us what life was like before the threat started. Prior to the threat starting, uh, what happened is, is that in my, ninth, my teens and in my 20s, uh, my, I worked in various jobs, doing this, that and the other, some bar work, civil service, local government work, sweeping floors, anything really. Uh, by my late 20s, early 30s, I had decided that enough is enough and that I should really do something in terms of creating a career for myself. And at that point, I resolved to go to a local college here in Glasgow, uh, where I did some hires and an A-level. Uh, and I uh, subsequently moved on to Glasgow University where I did a four-year course in uh, English literature, history, politics. Graduated from there in 1995 and uh, took a year out. And thereafter, uh, I did a year's postgraduate uh, certificate in teaching at Strathclyde University and thereafter went on to try and develop a teaching career. Eventually, by 2001, I was established in a full-time post in the northeast of Glasgow in a wonderful school. So what did you teach? I, I taught mainly English, uh, sometimes a little history, but mainly English. And that was to secondary school? Secondary school, age children. Yeah. So that's what life was like before. And as you said, there were a number of threats that were made to you by the eventual complainers who went to the police. And these threats were serious. They were saying to you that they were going to, as you said, ruin your career. My understanding from speaking to you outside the podcast is that you then went to your employers, as you're obligated to do, yes. and told them that you were being threatened. 
And I took the, the threat very seriously indeed, knowing full well the person that was making the threat and subsequently persons who were making these threats. Uh, I, I took them very seriously indeed and reported them to my employers. And then at some stage, the police turn up? Yes. They turned up at my door one Friday night in August 2003 and uh, asked if I would uh, appear at a police station on the following day. Uh, for a voluntary interview, uh, which I agreed to. I secured the services of a solicitor to accompany me. He was allowed to sit in at that point in time. The, the police could have stopped it, but he was allowed to sit in. And what was an interview, in fact, turned out to be simply a charging exercise. It was no interview whatsoever. They weren't interested in anything I had to say. It was simply a charging exercise by any other name. And these were historical allegations that dated back to the 1970s? Yes. And you were denying those allegations. Absolutely. Gave, I imagine, a very detailed account to the police, making it clear that they were false and malicious lies. No, I was strongly advised. Uh, I was told by the solicitor who was representing me that you can't move in the High Court in Glasgow for historical sex cases. And he said, you say nothing, nothing at all. You have to give them your name, your address, your age, and that's it, nothing else. So that must have been against what you wanted to do in some ways. You've never been involved in the criminal justice system before, certainly not as an alleged perpetrator of a crime. Yeah. So you're going to follow your solicitor, but you would have made it clear that there was nothing to do with you and you had obviously reported everything to your employer in any event. Yes, indeed. And uh, I have to say that by 2010, uh, the Crown Office in Scotland, uh, acting with the complainers, had uh, expanded the supposed time frame of these events and taken them even... At one point, they were taken into 1969. So they were actually expanding that period of time. Just as they changed allegations, for example, uh, let me say that the police said to me that day, for example, that one of the complainers uh, had told them that I had attempted to bugger him. I was charged with attempting to have him bugger me, but with no explanation as to why this was changed. And therein was a feature of this whole process whereby one thing would be said at one moment and it's deemed to be true, whether it's true or not, not investigated, but deemed to be true. And then later on, this becomes something else. And then that's deemed to be true. And the thing that was originally alleged, apparently, uh, is simply pushed aside, forgotten, and no one will address it. So when the allegations were made and you were interviewed by the police, yeah. what then happens to your job in the interim period before you eventually have your trial? I say you tried your first trial yeah. in 2005. I have to say that I was, I have been very fortunate in many, many ways. This may sound strange, but I've been very, very fortunate. I had enormous support from my colleagues, from the head teacher on down. Even subsequently, when the pupils heard what had been going on, I get enormous support from the pupils uh, in the school. And, uh, they just supported me so well. So between uh, the time when uh, I reported that I had been charged in August 2003 until the police turned up at my place of work in 2004, I was still in situ. The head teacher asked me to stay in situ and to continue. At that point, it had become difficult and there had to be a suspension at that point, which I understood perfectly well. Yes, they're obligated. It was the right thing to do. Yes. And your trial takes place, I know, the first trial in 2005. Yes. And obviously you have 
council yes. um, who is advocating on your behalf. And my understanding is that your defence was very clear. Yes. It was that these individuals were lying. Absolutely. And that one of the reasons they were lying is that they wanted money originally from you. Uh, and as you said, they wanted to ruin you and your career. Yes. The reality is, is that as far as the money side of things is concerned, I understood from early on because of the nature of the complainers uh, and, and from their histories that money looms large in their outlook. In the event, it turns out that indeed they were applying for criminal injuries compensation. And as far as I know, they were told they weren't going to get it because of certain rules that applied. But nonetheless, that appears to have been a strong motivation indeed. Can I just also point out that my employers gave evidence, my the head teacher, head of school. I was going to say that because I did read that they actually were character witnesses for you. Yes. Because you had an exemplary teaching record yeah. and you were of good character. Well, that's right. So we had colleagues turning up. In fact, in 2005, even a former pupil turned up to give evidence. Uh, so we had, we had a trial judge, for example, refused to allow uh, certain people, witnesses, to give evidence. For example, the complainer said that they had had nothing to do with me for years and years and years and years. These three women would have come into court to say, we know that that's not true. And we also are the victims of them sending the police to us with false and malicious complaints. But they weren't allowed to give evidence. So you had that. And also the, the key thing is that you, you gave evidence. Yes. But in the closing speech, your own counsel completely destroyed your defence yeah. and changed it. So essentially, my understanding, please tell me if I'm wrong, but he actually said that they were, and I'm not quoting no. from him, but essentially summarising it, they were good witnesses, they were, you know, not particularly liar, lying, but they may have false memory syndrome. Now, the difficulty with that is there had been no evidence about them having false memory syndrome, i.e. where they believe what they were saying was true. He said clearly, I do not say they are lying. It was, it was that blunt. I do not say they are lying. I say they have persuaded themselves that this has happened. And but in that moment, that's what the appeal court said. He removed my defence completely without any authority. Well, we'll get to what happened at the appeal. Yeah. But by making that speech, what actually happened was the jury went out and they came back and convicted you on a majority verdict. Yes. We spoke in the previous podcast to Ewan about the fact that you'll never know how many people had found you guilty, you know, what the majority was. Yes. But either way, not everyone was convinced I was told it was a split decision. I was told that there was very little in it. And so, eight. potentially, it could have been eight to seven. Yes. And you're there and you've been told you're found guilty. What went through your mind when you heard the verdict? My immediate response was to say, I will not accept this. This is abuse. This is abuse of the most grave and serious sort. I will not tolerate it. I will fight it. Uh, I raised my fist in court in the prescribed manner. 
but I would not accept it. I refused to accept the documentation that was telling me I would be uh, registered as a sex offender for the rest of my life. I refused to accept any of it. I was taken to the cells, whereupon another one of these incredible experiences. I, I've been so fortunate in so many ways. The various turnkeys turned after having put me in the cell, many of them came to the cell to express their dismay that having listened to what had gone on, they were astonished that I had been convicted. Astonished. I could not believe it. What, what sentence did the judge impose? I think in total it was 13 years and a lifelong licence. So not only are you convicted of something and it's a, a serious allegation, we're talking about sex offences. Absolutely. Um, and that has serious implications in the immediate aftermath, but also in the long term. Yes. Because, as you said, you have to sign on the sex offenders register. But you're also then sent to prison for a considerable period of time. Yes. You have never been in the criminal justice system involved before, as I said. Yeah. uh, As someone who is accused or someone who is found or pleads guilty to anything. So that must have been pretty shocking to all of a sudden find yourself in a prison setting. What was that like and how did you cope, certainly in the early few months? It really is a case of keeping your head above water and trying to survive. It really is basic stuff. Basic stuff. Eat, drink, think what's what you require to do and do your level best to preserve your sanity and your, uh, your courage because you need both in order to take on this system. Then, of course, there is the business of having to relate to other prisoners. I was going to say, it must have been very frightening because obviously you're in a prison setting with people who would have committed serious offences. Yes. And violent offences sometimes. Yes. So from your point of view, it must have just been absolutely devastating. And you also have to deal with the fact that prisoners have a hierarchy of good criminals and bad criminals, you know, and of course the worst is a sex sex offender. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you're a murderer, you know, you're you're a pretty good guy, apparently. But if you're a sex offender, you're you're the lowest of the low, aren't you, in terms of the hierarchy, like you said. Yes, yes. And that puts your life at risk. It does. However, uh, I was taken to... Barlini in Glasgow, which is a horrendous old Victorian dump. Filthy, <laughs> horrible, nasty, brutal place, so it is. And that's just the wardens and what have you. I didn't spend too long there. Uh, I was moved to another long-term prison, which had sex offenders and vulnerable prisoners uh, kept in there. So that was very, very different. Uh, you were able to have much more uh, social interaction with other prisoners and of course, as I got to know people and they got to know me, trust begins to be built. And because of my education and ability to write and speak, prisoners would come to me and ask me to help them put together their grounds of appeal, for example, to the Criminal Cases Review Commission and so on and so forth. And in that way, in a sense, build some community. So you could help others who are in a similar position as yourself. At some point, I know that you appealed the decision. The appeal, the court decision came through in early 2009. 
So you've spent at that stage about four years in prison? Just about. You then have the appeal court look at the case. I know there were two grounds of appeal, but your counsel, who was obviously, it was a new legal team, but yes. counsel focused on the second ground, and in particular on the facts that we've talked about, that the closing speech had meant that your defence had been abandoned. Yes, and therefore it was a miscarriage of justice and you couldn't have a fair trial. Yes, that's exactly right. And in fact, that's exactly what the appeal court found, didn't they? They did, unanimously. They made it very clear is that they heard uh, or had representations uh, from the barrister or the counsel that represented you at the original trial. Yes. And from the judge. Yes. But when they looked at everything, in particular sort of the specific words of what he said to the jury. Yes. They made it very clear that you didn't have a fair trial and it was a miscarriage of justice for that reason, that the yes. closing speech had ruined yes. any chance. Yes, they did. Absolutely they did. And they quashed the convictions. They no longer existed. They quashed them. Now, from my perspective, having heard that, I know there was going to be a retrial. How long after the conviction being quashed was there a retrial? And I'd hoped that maybe you had been granted bail in that interim period. But I know that's not the case, so perhaps if you could just explain. Bail was refused. Now, as I understand that uh, the judges have, uh, they can grant bail. Mm -hmm. uh, however, if reconvicted, they're not required to take into account time served and so on and so on and so forth. So they may have thought they were doing me a favour, for example. I don't have any particular angst about that in no. particular. I could see what the arguments before them were. They made a decision. I wasn't particularly chuffed with it, but I could understand how they got there. Uh, and that was partly to do because one of the judges on the bench, there were three judges, one of them I had encountered before in previous hearings, and I had been very struck by the fact that he stood out from other judges that I had encountered because he seemed to have a concern for fair play. That was not the case in front of many of the judges and none of the sheriffs that I encountered. They had no interest in fair play whatsoever. He gave a strong impression that he did. And so that gave me, you know, quite a good feeling. So I accepted that verdict. I was returned to prison. As I was being driven back to, to prison, I was diverted to another prison. And, and so when then you're having your retrial, did you carry much hope that you would be acquitted? Or did you think, well, bearing in mind what you experienced, apart from the judge, the appeal judge that you talked about, who had seemed like they really thought about fair play, did you carry much hope that there would be any change in the verdict? It was an interesting point. Throughout 2009, there were numerous uh, supplementary hearings, procedural hearings, how do we get to this stage? How do we get to that stage? Are you ready for to go to trial and so on and so forth? Now, at one point there, one of the judges there, Lord Bonamy, who I think had sat in the, the court in The Hague at one point, had returned to Scotland and he asked my QC at that time, uh, do you intend to recognise, interview these complainers? If so, I want them interviewed at the same time separately because the scope for collusion in this case is too great. That was the last time I had any judicial office holder say such a thing. 
that's, all quite, the time. that's quite a big thing to say, isn't it? It's very yeah. bold. And, yes. And, and that must have been reassuring from your point of view because yes. it makes you feel that at least someone is saying it's got to be done properly and fairly, bearing in mind the history of the case. Yes. He also uh, gave permission for telephone records to be retrieved because up until that point, all of these incompetent legal people Apologies. Had simply. Can I just say that's your experience and that's how you felt? It is what it is. It's really sad as a professional. Obviously, I don't practice in Scotland, so it's a different system. But at the same time, no one wants anyone to feel like that. And we know anyway from the appeal judgment. But they made it clear the reason why you didn't have a fair trial is because of what your counsel did. He gave permission for phone records to be recovered. Why would you want phone records to be recovered even at that stage? One of the claims, uh, strong claims by the complainers was is that they had little or no contact with me. Telephone records would independently prove that to be false. Correct, I understand that. That seems quite straightforward, something yeah. that should be done. It should have been done in 2004. Yeah. It should have been done years before. However, even by the time we got to August, September of that month, these had not been recovered. And I suddenly was confronted in the public visiting area of a prison on a Thursday evening by a solicitor whom I knew and an advocate whom I had never seen before. This advocate's opening sally was, you're a very fortunate man, Mr Boyle. Well, I have to say, the irony was lost in her. And I, you know, and then after we were discussing what was called, what's called, it's called a Section 275 application where you ask permission to lead a defence and the court can decide whether or not you're going to be allowed it or part of it or none of it. And so we <laughs> sat down and she started speaking to me and I thought, this is not, she has not been reading my submissions. She has simply copied an incompetent earlier version. So, for example, I asked her, uh, I said, where is this place that you mention in this, this document? She says, I don't know. I said, well, I don't know either. And I made the point then, you have not followed my instruction. You have simply copied something from an earlier period and you will not be representing me in court next week. There will be no application made, and if you attempt to lead this application, I will oppose it. So you sacked them? Uh, so, in fact, what happened was is we turned up at court a week later, and the, the two of them came into the cell to tell me that they had they dropped me. <laughs> <laughs> so they've withdrawn, they felt professionally embarrassed or something. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is where it became very interesting. Yeah. Because at this point, I was unknowingly, as it were, moving towards getting the actual real professional you know, effective uh, legal representation. I tried to contact a number of people, solicitors and what have you, and uh, one in particular, John Scott replied, if I remember rightly, he was the only one who replied, and he asked to come through and visit me in the prison. Uh, we had a discussion and he explained to me that this was the first time in two years. He had been working for the previous two years solely on the appeal of uh, Ali Magrahi, the so-called Libyan bomber, and that his time there had finished and he was now free to take on other cases. Mine was the first that he took on. This was an enormous piece of luck for me as things transpired. I imagine it was relief as well that you had someone that was going to, you felt you could trust. Yes. And was going to fight your case. Yes, in fact, so, so well did we get on that uh, while I was banging on about this Section 275 application, he said, I've never asked a client before to do this, but... I'm going to ask you, would you draw up what you think should be in the application? Wow. So I did I did one for each of the complainers. 
And he subsequently told me that his friend who grades the, the standard for solicitor advocate in Scotland, uh, I had passed. <laughs> I also got something, isn't it? Yes. I mean, yes. Wow. So, so you built up the legal knowledge and he said he gave you that. Yes. That task. Yes. And then he took it and, of course, used yeah. what could be used and excluded what couldn't be used. No, no, but it's a team effort, isn't it? Yes. And he'd listened to you is the point. Yes. That happened and you have to retrial. Now, at the retrial, my understanding is that you were acquitted. Yes. And we learnt in the earlier podcast that there were three verdicts in Scotland. One is guilty, obviously. Uh, one is not guilty and one is not proven. But what you have made really clear and what certainly I have understood having researched this, because we don't have that, as you know, in England, this yeah. is not proven concept, is that it's exactly the same thing. Yes. So you can have someone that's found, as we said, not guilty because they think they're innocent, or it could be because they're not sure. Yes. But likewise, not proven means the same thing. And not only that, but the trial judge, who in the retrial was a, a temporary judge, QC, and he explained clearly to them, and he said clearly, both of these verdicts are verdicts of acquittal. It's up to you which you choose, should you decide to choose either of them. But the idea is, and I know it's... it's it's different in practice, and we'll talk about it in a moment. The legal consequences are the same. You've yes. been found not guilty. You've yes. been acquitted. Yes. Now, what then happens is that you want to go back to teaching yeah. because you'd found a vocation that you loved and you were passionate about. And we know, like you said, so many people, including former pupils, yes. have been supportive. But to do that, because you've been in custody your teaching certificate yes. had lapsed. Yes. So you had to reapply yes. to the General Teaching Council. Yes. And, of course, their situation is that they say, well, there's a civil standard. Yes. So more likely than not on the balance of probabilities. Yes. And they decided that you were not entitled to have your practising certificate. And I know that you've said, and I've read various documents that you've been kind enough to share with me. But although they say they haven't taken on board the fact it was not proven, they kind of have because it's as if they think, well, if it's not proven, it means that the jury couldn't decide. Yeah. And that's influenced them, you feel? Very possibly. Very possibly. From early on, the General Teaching Council's chief executive indicated to me in a letter, which I think I provided to you, he described the verdict of the Court of Appeal as uh, the miscarriage of justice that I believe to have been inflicted. I remember the words. Me. Yeah, because you sent me a letter. It was perceived. Perceived. I perceived. And, and obviously, from your point of view, it's then saying, well, we don't believe... That's before they've mm. made a decision. Yeah. But we don't believe you, but you, you're telling us you think... Well, not. they don't... They, they, in fact, what they were saying is, is that we repudiate the Court of Appeal, the Appeal Court opinion, decision. We repudiate it. You perceive that you are the victim of it. The appeal court made it clear that I was a victim of miscarriage of justice. And can I just add to that as well, that it's important to understand that a Scottish government minister, a supposed justice minister, Michael Matheson, wrote to uh, one of my local MSPs and he made exactly the same point. He said that the threats against me, which are founded in the evidence of one of the people who issued them, founded in her evidence to the High Court in 2010, the only time any of them had have admitted threatening me, the only occasion, 
he described these as allegations on my part. In other words, another matter of perceive, not a matter of evidence. Fact, not a matter of fact. Evidence. And there were a couple of other things that really concerned me in the documentation that you shared. And this may be controversial to say, but but it is what it is. For instance, one thing is, is that the trial judge made it clear on both occasions, on, the, on both trials, that you were of good character. Yes. And you were kind enough to share with me I don't know what it's called in Scotland. In England, it's a DRB check. used to be CRB check. But the check that shows. And it's an enhanced check because of the teaching profession. It has to be enhanced, which not only shows whether someone's got convictions or cautions against them, but but anything else, any other information that sort of suggests that that people should be concerned about the character of that individual. And then what happened was, is that after your trial, and you've been acquitted, the Scottish police say that you have or were given a warning for a conviction, is it? Okay, conviction for soliciting. Yes. Now, clearly that's very damaging because you're accused of sex offences, which you've been acquitted of. Yeah. But there's a little bit of a link which we can see. And what happens is, is that you know that's not true. So you say, well, I want to know which court was I convicted in? Where is the record of the conviction? Why has it not been made available? And why didn't that come up before your two previous trials? Exactly. And why didn't that come up before you became a teacher and were allowed to teach in the secondary school? And what happens is, is my understanding, is that they say that that has been destroyed, that information. Yes. Having said that, this, uh, this conviction fabrication uh, was... Eventually, in 2016, I think it was, 2016, (laughs) the police eventually said, oh, that's a mistake. Wow. That's a mistake. However, we're going to say that you were subject to a street warning. So that's why I mentioned the warning before. Yeah. But it was actually, they were saying, started off a conviction, then it changes to a warning. Either way, you didn't have that conviction or warning, whatever it is, but they can't produce the evidence to back that up. No, they can't. But, but that is potentially going to be taken into account, surely, by any organisation or authority of any credence, bearing in mind the profession you want to re-enter. Yes. That is really concerning. Absolutely concerning. I, I mean, absolutely. I, make, I, I don't have a problem with these things if they're real. No, if, if you're guilty of something, <laughs> you, know, you hold real... your hands up. The issue is... That that didn't exist. What this is is yet another example of the persistence of fabrication throughout this entire process. Fabrication is central to what has gone on here. People lying. So you, understandably, feel very frustrated and let down by a number of professionals that you've come across, in- including previous legal teams. Yes. And as I said, as a solicitor, I have to acknowledge that the appeal court, as I said, made it very clear. Mm that your case was a miscarriage of justice because you have been let down. Yes. You're in a position now where you're trying to, I imagine, move on. You're trying to have some sort of normal life as much as you can. I mean, as I understood it, what should happen is is that having gone through that process, having been acquitted, uh, that your life should be restored to you as was. And has it? Certainly not. The whole criminal enterprise has continued right up until the present day. Every day in life I live with the imposition of these, the purposes expressed in these threats upon me. 
to ruin my life, to destroy my career, and to leave me penniless. And can I just say finally on, uh, it's, yeah. it's finally on that general teaching council point, uh, I was supplied with a number of papers because I kept persistently demanding papers and this, that, and then I said, you must give me proof. What's your proof for saying this? Uh, who, who did the conviction? Where is the certificate of conviction from a court? Who are the police officers? Who are the supposed prostitutes? None of it. But what there was supplied to me by the General Teaching Council, perhaps inadvertently, I suspect it was inadvertent, was a record of a phone call between the General Teaching Council and the old Scottish Criminal Records Office. Right. And the Scottish Criminal Records Office says, hey, just in case you need to know, here's a description of him. And in that description, they, 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 they describe a person with fair hair. I've never been fair-haired in my life. I don't know what you used to look like, but I'm sat here and you've got no hair at the moment. Right. But and uh, but uh, and I've dyed my hair many times in the past as well. I can tell you, but no fair hair. I never was fair-headed, and it was not a description of me. As simple as that. But of course, they refused to accept the fact of the matter. I know you're still fighting yes. for justice in many ways. Yes. Different problems, even though you've been acquitted. Yeah. And it takes a toll on life. It certainly does. What would your advice be to someone who finds themselves in a similar position as you? So let, let's say this. Let's say they're a teacher, as an example, and they're accused of a sex offence. Falsely accused, wrongly accused. What would your advice be to them in terms of I think in retrospect... What to do? In retrospect, I think, first of all, I had a duty to report the matter to my employers, so that's an absolute given. The, the way matters progressed in subsequent weeks that I wasn't aware of uh, suggests to me that also what I ought to have done was secure the services of a solicitor and gone to a police station and reported the initial threat. That then would, for example, have preceded... Uh, the supposed trigger by weeks it would have preceded and that then would have brought into focus how can threat precede trigger but of course the police didn't want to know about that the my legal teams barely understood this at points uh, certainly the judicial office holders weren't the least bit interested in the main in any of this and the crown office couldn't care less because they're only after convictions but like you said, in hindsight, had you done that, who knows what would have happened. Who knows what But that's your advice. Yeah. I would certainly say that those would be some initial thoughts that I would have on the matter and uh, to keep very, very good notes of what has happened and what has been said so that you are in a position to supply your legal agents, good or bad, with relevant information, dates, what was said, and so on and so on and so forth. How was it said? Was it a letter? Was it by telephone? Was it by email? Was it... Make very, very cl concise, clear records of what has happened. Especially as, it's, timeline. especially as a historical case. There's no forensics, there's no uh, CCTV, yes. nothing of that nature. I realise there's phone records. Yes. But it's then, like you said, critical, yes. isn't it? Yes. To make sure that you document everything. Yeah. So that if it comes back to bite you've got some sort of proof. And the other thing which I would say, actually, is it's not a bad thing to take a photograph of that and send it to yourself because then you've got the date and the time when you did that. 
I think so that's an excellent that, that's idea. Something. I think that's very, very good advice indeed. Very, very strong advice. And uh, look, it's a horrendous situation. It's no uh, exaggeration to say that these designed miscarriages of justice, they are not accidents. Nobody will tell me, although I think some people would like us to believe, for example, that the police officer who stuck a gun in Paddy Hill's mouth was engaged in the commission of an accident. He most certainly was not. He was committing several crimes. And that's what these are. They are crimes, criminal designs. What I would like to say, Jimmy, is thank you ever so much for sharing your story because I realise it's a very painful story to have to retell uh, time and time again. Uh, but I am grateful for you taking the time to do that and also for sharing loads of documents with me so that I had a better understanding before I met you of the ordeal you've been through. Thank you very much, Jimmy. What I would just like to say, if I may, in conclusion, is that I always need to emphasise the positives as well in this case. The support I've had from colleagues and former pupils has been extraordinary and it has been a gift, it has been a grace, as a matter of fact. The community that I come from has been overwhelmingly supportive of me, knowing what has been alleged, knowing what has occurred in the sense of me being sent to prison, having read the disgusting, filthy headlines in the gutter press, the amount of support that I have had has been absolutely extraordinary. And I can only say that my colleagues, my pupils, my neighbours, my friends, I have friends of 50 years and more now who have stood by me right throughout this, stood by me because they know from their own life experience that much of what has been said is false. And why, therefore, would these allegations, if they are true, be stood on so many falsehoods, falsehoods that they know from their own experience? And can I just say also that some of these people, some of these people, in all this knowledge, asked me to tutor their children. Well, well, on that note, Thank you so much for sharing that, Jimmy. I think that's important that those who have supported you hear that as well. Yes. Because um, they have so. made a difference. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you, Max. Thank you for listening to that episode. It is a very important story and I hope that it has helped others who face similar allegations hear from Jimmy. I'd like to thank him for opening up and sharing his story with us. Jimmy, as you know, was a teacher and he shared with me a poem that he has written about his experience of the criminal justice system. Now this poem was influenced by the poem Much Madness's Diviner Sense written by Emily Dickinson. It is called From Emily Dickinson. Much madness is presumption of guilt in Scottish courts of law. No sense for starkest abuse. Tis the human in this as all evil. Ascent and you are sane, demure, you're straightway dangerous and handled with a chain. Thank you, Jimmy. Moving on to the next episode, I'm going to be talking to Mike O'Brien again. And in the next episode, he shares with me all the work that he has done to help others since his conviction was overturned. We also talk about a number of controversial issues, including representation in the police station and also in the death penalty. Because the reality is this, if the death penalty had still been around to this day, then people People like Mike O'Brien, the Birmingham Six, Maguire Seven, Barry George, and many, many others would have been executed. So it is a very topical and controversial issue, but I hope you'll join us.